Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations, and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. This week, I'm bringing you my interview with Michael Lowe of Look of Legends, a game designer and educator who uses play in really interesting and innovative ways in the classroom. This was a fascinating discussion, and I'm really excited to finally share it with you. And now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're talking to Michael Lowe of Look of Legends. Hi there, Michael, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, absolutely no problem. I think we've been trying to arrange a mutually beneficial time for like the past six months or something. So yeah. <laughs> it's Parenting good to have you here what it is, yeah. Yeah, it is that. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, would you like to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in indie tabletop role playing games? Yeah, sure. I am at luckoflegends.com and I kind of do two things. One is I use role playing games to teach writing to kids, and I've been developing a curriculum and a series of systems around that for years now. And the other piece is I make games for folks to play at home. And you can find me on itch. And I also have a Kickstarter up for a home version of my literacy game. We are definitely going to talk about Star Swan. I promise oh, right that. On. But first of all, I'd sort of like to have the, a discussion about like why you think there's a good segue between role-playing games and education. You know, this is interesting. <laughs> I've written a lot about this. Uh, I'm a little obsessed. If you think about the list of skills that a good teacher needs and the list of skills, an interactive collaborative storyteller. I prefer MC, master of ceremonies to any other term, because that's really what you're doing, right? You're helping everybody tell the story. You're running right. the ceremony. There's a huge amount of overlap. The problem is that both disciplines kind of are lacking pieces from the other. I think that fantasy games and storytelling games help, and they've definitely helped me as a teacher, reframe how uh, learning works invite students to have more agency and voice and ownership, which increases engagement monumentally. I've got kids writing 100-page novels in threads together. They're absolutely creating their own worlds, and they are passionately staying on. There's this argument about who gets to run the after party, because when class time is over, the kids all want to stay on to write together and add to the wow. collective world that they've been working on. Any teacher's dream is absolutely fostering a love of learning that extends to independent drive. And that's something that fantasy and science fiction and, and creative writing benefit hugely from. And it's applicable yeah. to a lot of other domains. I'm working with some folks in a high school in Illinois who are using my game to teach human geography. And we've been creating a staged approach. It's useful in so many different arenas, but it just requires a little bit of learning and sort of bridging the gap because role-playing has kind of historically been weirdly closed off from other areas of different disciplines like education. Yeah. A lot of that, I think, comes from just a weird, I feel like we've all forgotten, right? We've forgotten that make-believe is the first story. It's the first game. Everybody does it. It's natural and, and immediate. Sort of relearning it is something adults are bad at. Kids are great at it. I think that's right. Yeah. Like play is so natural to children and it's how they 
you know first learn and first interact with the world like i watch my one-year-old child like learning through like pretending to do stuff and that's really interesting like it's fascinating to watch my older kids as well like interact through playing as as though it's just totally normal it is it's it's weird that then well it's not weird because the education system has classically disincentivized this and like wants to separate learning from play but yeah I think we are starting to learn, if you like, that actually a lot of kids are really motivated by games and by play. And like, that's something that we should leverage. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I have a few things I like to say about the way that learning has been structured in most developed economies. One of them is that school is a very badly designed game, one where (laughs) it's been created for people other than the players. So kids play the game, but the game was not created for them. The the Mm. game was created for parents who have certain requirements on their schedule, for teachers who have certain requirements for numbers they have to produce and uh, goals they have to meet. And nobody was considering the people playing the game. So there are points involved, but they're arbitrary. And a lot of them feel very disconnected from kids' lives. A lot of the rewards are arbitrary and feel pointless. And I often say that, you know, A students and F students have a lot in common. They both understand the same thing, which is that the game is rigged and it's arbitrary and the rules shift depending on who you're playing with and for. And they just have had a very different reaction. A students have their own reason, usually motivated from the home, right? Where they're like, okay, it's a dumb, pointless game, so I'm going to win. And F students have the opposite reaction. They're like, this is a dumb game. And they're, they're sort of punishing me for playing. It's not any fun. So I'm going to save my energy for things I like. To heck with this game. And the yeah. sad thing is I often feel that the A students are the ones who who lose out more. I, I respect the F students a lot for having the firmness of mind and, and resolve to decide they're done. Because yeah. I feel like what you've described there is a mm. traditional role-playing game, like a trad role-playing game, we might say. There you go. And like to think that in a sense, those games were not necessarily designed <laughs> with the players in mind and well, the rules are arbitrary and they shift from time to time. That's really I think they interesting. Were. I, think, well. I think trad games were designed with a certain kind of player in mind, but a very narrow slice of the population. Yeah. Do you think that's the A players or the F players? You know. Well, so this connects to another thing I'm obsessed with, which is fun, which right. is a great book that's out now, but it's about how to have fun. The definition she gives is fun is playful, connected flow. That's how you know you're having fun. And flow states are absolutely the goal when you're trying to help people learn. When you can find somebody who can get into a flow state doing something where they're generating, creating, they lose track of time. They're so immersed in the activity that they're able to fully express themselves. Their brain is processing at a higher rate. That's how you know you've mastered something. That's why one of the other things I often say about school is if, if you're if you're teaching and kids aren't having fun, you're doing it wrong. Because it has to be fun for them to be able to be incentivized and get into a flow state and care enough to really deeply learn the structures that you're creating. There's an eight types of fun model that I like a lot in design. And I think a lot of the trad gamers, they really like one of the eight types, which is challenge. So they want to win. And in order to win, there has to be a possibility of losing. And they really like losing because losing allows them to know that when they have victory, it was theirs. And a lot of the rest of us like things like narrative fun and expression and discovery fun and fellowship, you know, the feeling of being connected with a group. You know, trad games were very focused on challenge. And a lot of those other types were sort of almost accidental at first. You know, D&D was a war game. The story part kind of 
that just kind of happened a little bit on the sides. Yeah, it was was an accident, but it was a fortunate one. Building for those things has been part of the indie RPG explosion, realizing that those are the things we want to center. And how do we help people have those experiences? And how do we recreate games? So the point is narrative fellowship and discovery, not challenge and, you know, life or death. And I think the same thing's true in learning. We're trying to recreate it, right? How do we take it away from points and build it towards a sense of fun and engagement? I mean, there's so much to <laughs> touch on that. I can tell you're extremely uh, nerdy. Nerdy is the word. You, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's it's not nerdy. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean that in the best way. You are enthusiastic about something that, that both occupies your life in two different ways, you know, like it's a full yeah, overlap. It's I'm fantastic. Now, it's I'm now designing fantastic. and teaching and those two things are inseparable. I design for my students and my design is informed by my students. It's weird. I like I've not set out to do this, but I've spoken to so many designers over the last couple of years mm. who are using game in an educational setting. Stories are absolutely the what way do you think communicate what? culture, communicate values and so crucial to who we are, right? I mean, we all are yeah. the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what is story play, but experimenting with who we are and what we believe, right? Do you think there are certain things that you can do to help children learn how to play in an effective way? Or is that not what you need to do? Oh, wow. That's interesting because I often think that the reason I want to introduce story gaming to a larger audience of teachers I'm going with a crew of educators. Uh, We're actually presenting in two sessions this spring in March in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest Education. And we're presenting on how to use games in education. I often think the problem isn't kids. The problem is, is adults. One of the great things about running a storytelling game is it forces you to focus on the things that matter most in a classroom. You focus on your students, their interactions on helping them build a story, on giving them agency, asking them what they want to do, allowing them to make choices, allowing them to drive, but helping them by saying things like, okay, turn your turn signal on here. Let's use some calibration tools to to have this discussion since there's a little tension here. But you guys get to commit on how you want to drive the car and where we're going. I'll help you get there. So yeah, I think there's a lot of learning to be done by adults. And uh, relatively speaking, less to be done by students. But Mm. I do think in terms of design, one of the most, one of the reasons this hasn't translated, and this is another thing that I like to say, I think there's a huge difference between games used to teach and games designed to teach. Okay. And I think one of the reasons it hasn't spread as much as it could is that very often people who've played and kind of mastered the art of playing a particular game, usually the dragon game, will say (laughs) things like, gosh, it's so educational and kids can do and get all these benefits from playing it. That's lovely. Kids can do and get all these benefits from playing Legos. But there's a reason that it's not structured into curriculum. And part of that is that oftentimes nobody's approached it as a curriculum element, right? Mm, right? We haven't said, what are our standards we're hitting? How are we going to make sure we can measure those standards? How do we uh, give kids feedback on what they do in a state of play without dampening the play by making them feel judged or that their material is wanting? These are the reasons that as a teacher, you know, I started using games in the classroom from the get-go because I was, you know, obsessed and it's part of who I am. 
But figuring out how to use games to teach writing required a very thoughtful approach. And kids kept informing me, you know, I joke that I've had more more hours of playtesting than anybody I know because I GM professionally for students as a teacher who helps them learn to write. And because of that, I'm constantly editing and tweaking based on how they show me what works and what doesn't. And I think that's part of the reason it hasn't become a more common practice is bringing it into the classroom requires that you have this uh, structural uh, setup that allows you to say to the authorities that be, here are all the things that I'm hitting. Here's my pacing guide. Here's how I'm fulfilling the requirements of the system. That's difficult to build without practicing first. So it's a structural issue. You know, it's kind of a, it's that kind of quantitative assessment level you know, mm. the game that adults are sort of trying to play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes and to... no. I mean, you yeah. can, I've found a million workarounds for quantitative assessments. And yeah. one of the brilliant ones for writing is you teach the kids how to evaluate their own work and you make it very easy for them to repair it to increase their scores. So mm. that there's an incentive, very natural one, to edit and improve their writing. And of course, it also allows them to choose where they want to go. You know, do I want to just pass or do I want to absolutely master this because both choices are absolutely valid. Yeah. It should be up to the learner to decide which one is their choice. In my games, we operate on Google Docs. We use Google Slides and I have about 10 different worlds as set up. And usually at the beginning of the game, there's a series of questions they'll take um, turns answering to sort of better build the scenario. This one was kids merging two scenarios. I introduce all the scenarios. I let them vote. And then based on their votes, we'll talk about which one we decide on. And one of the rules we have is everyone agrees or we don't play. And then if one of them has the most votes, then people get to try to convince the holdouts and the holdouts get to try to convince the people who are playing. But this one was uh, merged together between We Are Goblins and RimWorld Rebels, which are two different game settings I like to use. So they had Rebel Goblins, right? It starts out with the quick building of the world. And then they get to build their characters who are created with tags. These tags are narrative. So, you know, drive, I want to find a person that doesn't think I'm a killer. This is a very, he ended up being an adorable, adorable character who looked horrific because he was an experiment. They have absolute freedom to create their characters however they like, but they have a certain number of tags. They're asked to write. We come up with prompts after each game session. The prompts, they can choose whichever they want. And then they can write as much or as little as they choose. However, they get story points based on what they write. So when we come back together each session, we read aloud everybody's stories. We clap like crazy and cheer wildly. We discuss how what they've created fits into the lore of our world and whether anything needs to be added to lore slides. And the kids also have access to the document in between classes. So they're always you know, snooping on each other's stories and writing about each other's characters and doing collabs. Nice. Um, it's, it's really fun. And yeah, then the, it's story, incredible. <laughs> the story points, this is hundreds of pages and this doesn't even, this is only half of the game. <laughs> but the story points can then be used to buy new tags for their characters and also right. to buy special abilities and re-rolls. So if they get into a dramatic situation and they have a drama clock, which is a mechanic that I use in almost all of my games, oftentimes they're really intense and they're like, okay, I got to save up my story points because we know we're going to face a drama clock if we decide we're going to blankety blank. And so ultimately what I've done and what the purpose of the design is, is to create a space that is like in any online game space like Minecraft, 
it's a play space. It's a space where the kids are free to create the world and the story as they see fit. Whatever they write becomes true. They are guaranteed to see it in the game. So I have to bring that to life. And that's my job as the yeah. teller to sort of guide that and, and weave these things together and help them see the connections that they can create. But the play space belongs to them. And that's really key. And there is no penalty. There's only reward. So you have a kid who writes one sentence or two the first week, and they see everyone else get cheered. They get cheered for their two sentences too, but they get one story point. Mm -hmm. And I don't assign that story point. We read it out loud and I say, how many story points do you want? And we go on a self-grading system of one is for, and I did almost nothing. Two is for, okay, but you know, it's like a paragraph. I kind of half, half did it. Three is a solid story. Four is holy monkeys. And five is, oh my gosh. That's how we do it. <laughs> and, and the kids are very honest about it. And the best part is like, they tend to undersell themselves and the other kids will be like, no, you, you deserve four. That was good. And, uh, and we always say it's a personal scale, right? So it's not comparative. You're not comparing your work to somebody else's. I'm asking you, how well did you do for you? And uh, yeah, so it's all joy and it's all positive, but boy, those kids who got one point the first week you know, they're going hard for week two. <laughs> um, and they're they're definitely like, they're like, mm. and there's always the kid who's like, they're low on points or they they have a failed role at a critical moment. And other kids will be like, take two points. You can, you can re-roll. And, and, and I'm like, okay, you give them two points and they can re-roll. And I'm like, but you know, you owe them now, right? <laughs> and then of course they work their butts off to try to pay back the kid yeah. who covered them. Fantastic. It's a little fun. I'm so excited by that. That sounds absolutely incredible. Yeah. This one, they decided to make a bestiary. They actually made a dictionary for goblins. They got into creating a language. It's great. There was, there's, yeah, there's so much. Um, Is there anything, you know, are, are there any school subjects that you wouldn't want to approach through through this kind of methodology like is it is it good for sort of skills and processes that you're trying to teach or is it good for can you use it for knowledge-based learning as well like stem subjects or yes so you said <laughs> one or the other my answer is yes to both yes it can okay <laughs> um i mean so i'll give you examples um, that's such a me thing to do as well <laughs> <laughs> well yeah is it well it's like, well, it's natural for us to do dichotomies right that's Kids definitely like, they'll always be like, well, it has to be this or this. And I'm like, why can't it be both? Are they mutually exclusive? Why not both? <laughs> yeah, let's go. You can have all the things. Well, I'll give you two examples. So I have the setting, a couple of ecology teaching settings. One of them is Beast Preservation Corps. You are members of a magical researcher squad that is committed to preserving and, and helping to foster uh, mythical magical creatures in the wild. And you go research and try to help them survive and expand as researchers. Or Knights of the Microbiome, where you are part of the microbiome critters, the fungi, bacteria, oh, awesome. who live in the body. <laughs> And you are knights, you are sworn to defend the body from harm. Um, but the cool part is you both have to do your research, you know, because like what, how does the heart function? If we're going to the heart, we need to know a little bit about it to imagine it as a fantasy place where we can help, right? And For the sure. same thing with Beast Preservation Corps. You know, when you create a new beast, I always say, listen, be careful, make sure you tell us its niche and its adaptations. And remember, if you create a world-ending monstrosity that spits acid and is covered with armor and um, you know can destroy anything, immediately you just implied that there's some reason it developed all of those, those defenses. So there has to be something worse. <laughs> something bigger, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, these are these are examples of how you can take a content approach. In that game I mentioned that I made for uh, Teachers in the Dungeon in um, Illinois, they're on 
Twitter. You can go look them up. We did a human geography course and they began their first slide deck that they built. They were refugees from a land that they had to decide why they'd left. They were fleeing war or persecution, or there was an ecological issue. They had come to a land that was unoccupied. I wanted to be careful to avoid colonial tropes, but they had a way to move through the map and try to find the ideal location for a city based on what they'd learned about how cities were founded for geographical purposes. You know, yeah. you need water, you need different mm. types of natural resources. The second deck that they played through was during their city's expansion when it was fully founded and developed and the characters in the first game were now street names and uh, and monuments. Oh, but that's cool. Dealing, yeah. It, it was fun. <laughs> nice legacy, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. And they were dealing with the question of, okay, well, now we're expanding and what are the issues the city's running into in terms of resources, in terms of culture clash and populations who are moving through and into and out of the city? The game's called Scions of the City. How's the new crop of Scions, the new you know leaders and, and community members who are committed to helping, going to deal with this issue? And each of them gets to build up to a little drama clock, but the way the kids do the research and build the world based on principles from the content mm. defines how many extra points they get to navigate difficult situations. So if they build their world beautifully, the chances that they can navigate and help their city are higher. That is a very inspiring framework. I'm, <laughs> we I'm amazed by what you're doing here. It sounds oh, absolutely incredible. I'd love to use this in adult learning as well. I'm I'm really interested in play for adult learning. And, so good. It's so yeah. good. I'm obsessed with... Uh, so I'm going to be releasing this, I think, within the next few months. It depends. Hold Fast Station is a game for... Uh, we're making it with Lamp Black and Brimstone. I made it with uh, Mo Poplar of Ashy Feet Games. And yes. I'm super in love with it because what we did there is it's completely zero prep and it's 100% collaborative. You can sit down at the table and it walks you through how to ask questions, build the characters, build the scenario, build the world. And by the end of it, it creates real bonds at the table. Like you mm. get committed to your station. You're like, you're playing asteroid miners in the void of space facing really serious difficulties in an environment where you can't leave, you can't run away, and you can't just murder your way out of things because every person on the station is connected to everyone else. You're a community, mm. whether you like it or not. So yeah. by the end of every game, it's been impossible oh, for people to, to sort of escape feeling both committed to this fantasy place they've created and also feeling like connected to each other. In, in education, you talk a lot about classroom culture, right? How yeah. do you build a positive learning environment where kids really love each other and feel at home, right? Safe and excited to be there. And one thing I think that's zany about uh, story games that's so powerful is that, you know, one fundamental element of trust is you don't build trust until you have relied on someone in a moment where you are emotionally vulnerable and they have shown you that it's safe for you to be vulnerable with them and that they will support you. And that's the amazing thing about storytelling games is they allow you to create that experience. We're in an emotionally tense moment. There's a story scene happening and we're all deeply committed to the outcome. And yeah. you saved me. You watched out for me. You supported me when things went wrong. And boy, and, now I trust you. And um, yet it's a low stakes environment that just teaches kids that they can have this trust in one another or exactly. teaches anybody that they can have this trust in one another. It helps yeah. them build the foundation for, you know, much <sighs> more elevated and yeah. longer term and more sincere levels of community. So it's an amazing tool. I mean, Fantastic. play is an amazing tool for building communities. I'm so impressed by that. And <laughs> You've got to look out for your stuff then, really. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask me questions about this stuff, this is the problem. You know, my wife looks at me and she's like, I, I can handle, 
10 minutes, <laughs> Michael, 10. And I'm like, but I have so much. We've got to talk about your Kickstarter. So. <laughs> Michael, tell us about Star Spawn. Okay. Okay. One thing I'm obsessed with is the idea of how to make role-playing games accessible. Mm. I think everyone loves make-believe. Everyone loves stories. It's natural. How on earth have we managed to create this gated experience that basically requires you have a table experience with somebody else who brings you in? There's no way yeah. to, to access it without someone reaching out and saying, come be in the physical space with a bunch of people who know how to do it. And then you learn how. And I think one of the answers is we've been making them for each other for too long. And so Star Sworn is my answer to that. Uh, it's a combination of a choose your own adventure book and a coloring book. And it also has an annotated podcast by the amazing uh, crew at Stories Podcast, which is the web's largest and longest running kids story time podcast, which blows my mind. It is designed to be zero prep. You can pick it up. You don't have to know anything about role-playing or anything else. You just pick it up and read it and it will tell you what to do. And by the time you make it through each chapter, you learn as you go how to ask the right questions, how to create characters, and it builds and scaffolds very slowly and naturally towards ever more interesting and tactically engaging um, mechanics. So that by the end of the first chapter, you know how to build a scene for yourself. By the end of the second chapter, you know how special powers work. By the end of the third chapter, you're creating drama clocks to create greater tension and more, more story ramp. That's what Starsworn is. It is currently up on Kickstarter. Uh, physical copies are going to be in people's homes before Christmas, which blows Well, that's mind. incredible. Wow. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, we've finished three chapters and have been waiting on a fourth. And it's been digital up until this point. I'm working with not only Dan Hines, but also Rob Hebert of Nerdy Paper Games, who's both mm -hmm. an incredible designer and also an unbelievable artist. And his work is just super expressive and gorgeous. And like the line work is just, I don't know, we print out his coloring book pages around here and nerd out for afternoons because they're just so great. <laughs> I put it up thinking, okay, you know what? It's time. I'm going to send a few copies to a few distributors. So might as well start a Kickstarter and see who's interested. And we've uh, we've quickly blown through five stretch goals and are working on a sixth. And um, nice. yeah, I'm super excited. We're writing a new chapter. And I also have Dan and I have been talking about starting a stories RPG podcast where I would run my games for him and his voice actors. And it would be for kids to help them and parents at home and, you know, anybody who would like to learn how to game, how to have a more collaborative game, what questions to ask and how to build that story together so that there's less prep and more story and more connection. That sounds so, amazing. You know, I'm super nerdy about it. <laughs> there's uh, it's definitely something that I've not heard of before. And yet I feel like there's a need for, like, I know there are a lot of parents out there who want to play role-playing games with their kids, but find it difficult to approach because... They come from this kind of this kind of structure where you play loads as a kid and then you stop playing for ages and then suddenly you actually remember that playing games is really fun and you start doing it again. But you can't necessarily reconcile that feeling of what it's like to play a game as a child. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why some parents struggle to play role playing games with their kids and to tell stories with their kids as well. And that seems kind of sad to me. So yeah, this is something that's so so required and is yeah, it's it's the work of kings, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not. Work of kings seems like colonialism. Oh, I said I'll, this I'll, before, uh, didn't I? Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm always every time you say like you're doing the kings, I'm always like, oh, not monarchs, please. Yeah, um, no, no, I, I mean, I'm yeah, okay. I'm a small R Republican as well. So <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I just uh, 
I just feel playful about it. You know, it's interesting because weirdly, even in gaming communities, we've sort of we've sort of elevated the way in which we think about play to the point where there's a little bit of, you know, people talk about, well, it's a Matt Mercer effect and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, we've put so much pressure on storytelling that we've absolutely killed the fun of it, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> um, like, like when I sit down to a table, I don't want to be performing. I want to be connecting and collaborating. Yeah. I want to have an experience with everyone else at the table. I don't want mm. to perform an experience for them. Um, and that pressure, I don't know. What an awful thing to ask a parent to do. We're already exhausted. We're doing our best to every <laughs> appointment and you know make sure that the teeth are brushed and all the laundry got folded. And you want me to sit down and figure out how to script an entire novel for my child? What are you mad? Um, and so, you know, and it doesn't have to be that way. It's a series of questions and it's very easy to set up very simple scenes where the questions and the back and forth allow you to build a scene together. And I think making that the entry level experience for gaming is a really positive way to frame it as a way to learn how to author because kids very quickly start building scenes using the tools that are in Stories RPG and Starsworn because they're designed to be very easy to learn. You know, I break every scene down into there's a hook, you know, a description of what's happening. Then there's a explore the scene section, which just has a series of questions that say things like, who's there? Who's upset about this? Who's interested in this? Um, mm. Is there anything around that could help? And you ask each other these questions to build it up. And then there's a section that says, make a move. Once you decide your characters want to do something or get involved, you get a chance and it's risky. The outcome's not certain. You can decide how you want to do that. Do you want to influence someone and try to persuade them? Do you want to get physical and climb something or jump or wrestle? Do you want to cast a spell because you've got an idea how you could solve this magically? Then you generate your dice pool. And there's a system for that. It's very simple. Each of your tags that applies generates one die. So I, uh, I have a yeah. beautiful singing voice. And this rampaging tiger, I'm going to sing this tiger down. Great. You got one die for a beautiful singing voice. What else have you got? Then a set of triumphs and troubles. What are some good things and bad things that might happen as a result of you getting involved in making a move? And it's a very simple setup that is very intuitive and kids can immediately start being like, okay, I'm going to make a scene for next time. I got yeah. this. And that's the purpose is really to help kids experience and parents experience and teachers experience what it's like to do this and then give them the tools to build towards off-ramping and being able to write their own stories. Fantastic. That's so cool. I'm very into it. I'm sold. That's the one. Well, you, you, you made this. This is, uh, this is Dear Nanny Dragon. You're already doing this work. You know exactly I'm what doing I'm that. talking about. Yeah, I, yeah, but I've not turned it into a coloring book. <laughs> Tell me why it's a coloring book. Well, there's a lot of different reasons it's a coloring book. There's a purely economic one. Coloring book illustrations are cheaper. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's an engagement reason. The reason I immediately was like, can we do this as a coloring book? When I began working with Daniel Hines, having different ways to engage with the scene is really important. So as a teacher, like I said, teaching and, and storytelling, they really share a lot in common. They overlap a lot. And one of the teacher skills that's really crucial that I think a lot of storytellers at the game table sometimes lack is paying attention to your players, seeing what they need, giving them different mm. ways to engage with what's happening. So some kids, you know, you could describe the scene and some kids will be like, I go over there and I tell this person this. And is there anything over there that I can blah, blah, blah? They, they already have ideas. That's great. Some kids are going, hmm, I don't really know how I feel about this just yet. I'm not sure what my character would say or do. But after about five minutes of coloring, they'll look up and go, so I think, <laughs> and they'll have something. 
So yeah. multiple ways to engage is always mm, uh, that's really best interesting. Practices. This, it reminds me of something from adult learning about how to approach different styles of learning yeah. in a single session. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so much that you can learn from gaming, but also that gaming can learn from that kind of framework as well. So it's really interesting to hear you reinforce that. I, I want to be careful here. Mo uh, Poplar, my buddy who uh, who built Holdfast with me and who I, we joke that we're, we're real friends because we've seen each other's legs uh, <laughs> in the era of Zoom. This is how you know. He teases me. Um, he says things like, oh, I'm a visual learner. It's very important to know there is no such thing Yes. As a particular type no, of learner, I, that's a I am aware. Yeah. Okay, I, I wanted to say that in case anybody listening, because you, know, you you never know. But it's a are. really useful framework to kind of get people integrated with that way of thinking about things. People know. prefer different ways to engage. Yeah, and I think for me, the key is it's social. It's about meeting people at their comfort level. In a classroom, you know, some kids are going to feel awful if you put them in the, on the spot and ask them a question. And if you ask an open question and then you you only call on the kid who wants to talk, you're framing that this is the only way that I will recognize interaction, right? right. I'm yeah. only going to talk to the kid who raises their hand and that means you're not important. Giving kids other ways to communicate, other ways to engage allows them to set the pace and have agency about how they build their relationship both with you and with everyone else in the room, how they choose to participate in the community. And I think that's key in games as well. You can have a quiet player who they're very engaged in their own way, but they're not they're not ready to engage in the way that other players are. So learning how they want to engage and giving them options and opportunities to engage in different ways is crucial. One reason I love running digitally is Oh my gosh, PMs are the best thing ever. Yes. Like I wish in a regular yeah, yeah, classroom yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have a PM. That would be amazing. Because <laughs> because kids will say things that they would never say out loud yeah. because there are so many consequences. But once they learn that you'll check the PM, you'll type something quick back to them. And if there's a concern that needs to be addressed, you'll figure out a way to introduce it that doesn't involve anybody knowing where it came from. And you'll absolutely recognize them. All of a sudden, the level of engagement skyrockets because it's yeah. a safe space and you've allowed them to find a way to engage what that is, makes sense for them. That is isn't that incredible? Like people talk about how education and gaming online is kind of different to the tabletop experience but like the way you're describing it sounds infinitely better to me (laughs) personally so i mean part of the reason i came up with the google slides approach and one of the things that's blown my mind about the google slides approach was that when i moved online everything was focused on trying to represent tabletop in the Mm. same way that when education went online everybody tried to model online education online learning in the same way they did the classroom which yeah, is just ludicrous. That. It's a fundamentally yeah. different medium. Find the strengths and play to those. I was part of a crew of teachers who went to our admin when we closed down in the spring of 2020. And uh, we got all the teachers together and we were like, oh my gosh, okay, let's not look at this as a problem. Let's look at it as an opportunity. We could blow up all the things about the classroom that don't work. So what if we let kids come to class at times that actually made sense for them, where they were actually free? What if we made smaller groups, shorter classes, but project-based stuff with multiple check-ins? You know, there are all these different things we could have done. And of course, 
legally what happened was, you know, admin was very receptive. They were lovely. They were like, oh my gosh, this is a great idea. Yeah, we should totally workshop this. And we said, okay, can we start building it now? And they said, you better wait. (laughs) And they said, you better wait because of course we were waiting on the legal conditions that would structure how we approach the classroom. And of course, what did we get? Mm. 90 minutes in a classroom is brilliant. It lets you do the work in the class. It lets you talk to each student individually. It lets you do a lot of workshopping and editing. 90 minutes in a digital classroom with 20 to 30 kids is an absolute punishment. Sounds like hell to me. It is. It's punishment. And I mean, many of my students during the pandemic, you know, they had siblings they were caring for. They had jobs they had to do to keep the lights on. And they definitely didn't want to turn on their camera because good God, they didn't want to share their home with 30 kids who were peers. They hadn't built the level of trust that would allow them to do that. So there were so many different ways in which, in the way that I'm approaching structuring gaming for digital platforms, education, gaming, they share this inability to shift. We're we're often very slow to to adapt, right? But there are Mm. so many brilliant ways you can do the thing better in a different format and use strengths that are particular to that format that are amazing. Like the collective slides doc for me, it's made the tabletop hard because if I'm meeting in person, we've just siloed everyone's character sheets and we've siloed all of their stories and we've siloed all of their contributions to the world. There's no longer this wonderful collective document that everybody's reading each other's Mm. stories on and commenting on and like linking funny songs. You know, my kids come up with so many different collaborative decisions about the world. Like in that Goblins game, somebody Rickrolled somebody else in the document. And and they decided at that moment that Never Gonna Give You Up was the Goblin Anthem. And they rewrote the whole thing. And there were all these scenes in which that became the like, you know, something would happen and all the one of the goblins would be like, would start the chant. And by the end, they would all be singing Rick Astley, like top of their lungs, goblin style. And it was brilliant, but that never would have happened at a tabletop. That's amazing. It's so interesting to hear you talk about how the form influences influences what you do. And, you know, I don't want to do tabletop itself down because yeah, of that's, that's a really unique experience. But it's really interesting Lovely. to hear that your classic VTTs are not making the most of what you can do. And games like this Discord has ghosts in it, you know, yeah. that is playing... That's- with an absolutely incredible medium and doing something really, really interesting with it, as opposed to just it being a play by post game. Exactly. Well, it's true. Alice is missing exactly the same thing. You know, it's a, it's an experience that exploits the best things about those means of communicating with one another. I'm really, really up for <laughs> exploring I, I, that in so ever, much more detail. Yeah. If you ever want to play a game, I will happily run for you. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I get what nerdy about this stuff because I don't know, virtual tabletops where you have these little avatars that you move around. I'm like, you just ruined the best part of what we can do. We can all be in each other's homes together and hanging out. You know, kids, kids, we always have a pet moment in the game where everybody's pet comes on screen. Kids will pick up an instrument and play for each other, which they never would have been able to do in a classroom or comfortable Mm. doing if they were in a classroom. And all of a sudden, you know, kids are cheering for them and they feel very proud of their skill. They get to share their lives a little bit in a different way. They're at home and they get to welcome each other into each other's homes. It's just different fundamentally. It sounds absolutely amazing. We're very slightly off topic of Star Wars. You know, I think it was a good diversion. We were talking about why it was a coloring book and we got into that form and seeming discussion, which was really cool. And I'm so glad we did. Um, yeah. What can what could we get from the Kickstarter just while we're oh just wow while we're here. Uh, so there will be a ninety page um, bound coloring book 
with color covers. There is a series of PDFs, which is all my educational tools that I've developed for Stories RPG. These are all designed to be system agnostic. So there is a base um, mechanic, but there's also a way to build scenes that you can use with any game. There's a way to use drama clocks, works for any game. There's a world building tool that was actually one of the stretch goals unlocked. Uh, all of those are going to be available digitally. There is a chapter four that is now digital. So there's going to be more than just the three chapters that are in the book, there's going to be a fourth chapter. We're actually writing it right now. And uh, there's going to be another AP pod produced by Dan. The characters on his show are actually going through a parallel plot line. So in chapter four, they're going to intersect and you're going to get a chance to hang out with the characters on the show. Incredible. Um, and there are pins as add-ons and stickers from my amazing friend, Mickey at Pineberry Paper, which is the coolest shop ever. I can say she's my friend because I literally officiated her wedding. Um, oh, right. Well, that, that counts. Yeah. It's legit. It's legit. But she's, <laughs> she's absolutely phenomenal. And I highly recommend her store to everybody, but I got so excited. She's doing our shipping and our pins and our stickers. And yeah, amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking us through all of that. Michael, can you tell us where we can find you online? Yes. Uh, so luckoflegends.com uh, on Twitter, you can find me at, at lucklegends. Uh, at luckoflegends.com, you can find my blog, you can find uh, classes if you've got kids who would love to write or who don't like writing and might need to fall in love with it. That's what we do. On Kickstarter, you can look up Star Sworn. We're closing in on a, what, a sixth stretch goal. I'm hoping we get a chance to meet even more because there's a coloring book extension we get to do, which is all the coloring book stuff and extra stuff that Rob's going to make. So yeah, super excited to see if we make get to the $7,000 mark and, and yes, unlock yes, that. yes. That would be amazing. Well, please go on back it now. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's, I think it's the, so we have 17 days to go. So it's the 18th. So if this is coming out on the 13th, they will have five days left. Nice. So go out and get this immediately. Okay. You, you don't have much time. I have a Facebook and an Instagram. You can, I, I can figure those out. <laughs> I think I'm going to find you. Michael, I guess all that remains for me to say is fantastically good luck with the rest of your Kickstarter campaign. Thank you so much. And thank you for being such a lovely voice. I mean, you've really given me a lot of support and given me a lot of encouragement. And I've really enjoyed getting to know you just online and in our chats about design. So thank you so much for all you've been doing for the community and for oh, folks who are starting that's out. That's very and, sweet. Thank you. <laughs> you know, genuinely. Like, I do think it's been really rewarding for me finding out how many lovely people there are working in indie RPGs. And I definitely think you're a big part of that. So thank you. Damn it. My horrible goose persona is is breaking. What am I going to do? Suffer. <laughs> I didn't mean to make you. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Michael for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. Next time, fingers crossed, we'll be talking to César Capacle, a Brazilian game designer, graphic designer, architect, and musician. César is the creator of Push, a really interesting system with push-your-luck mechanics that got a lot of indie attention last year. This episode is kindly sponsored by Matthew Gravelin, whose game Tapestry is available on itch.io and thegamecrafter.com. Tapestry is a blank slate, a fresh canvas, a new page on which to write any and all stories. It's a storytelling game with simple rules where all the players share equal narrative control. Tapestry is free from any themes and settings and instead relies on intuition and word association to drive the story forward. It uses simple prompts and clever yet simple mechanics which, when combined with the player's imaginations and desires, magically transforms into a rich story full of memorable characters, beautiful scenery and intense action. 
Available both in digital and pocket-sized mint tin versions, with Tapestry you hold all worlds and all stories in the palm of your hand. And until next month, the digital version of Tapestry is available along with six of its mini supplements for just $20, including magical and witchcraft decks made by my friends Breeder Dannon and Resident Bard. This week, I'd like to thank some of my incredible Patreon supporters. Hassan Yongdi, Sam Armstrong, Beyond Cataclysm Games, Georgie Bats, Sam Lee, and Jack Blair. Thank you all so, so much. We couldn't do what we do without you. And you, yes, you can get a regular shout out and joyful thanks too if you go to patreon.com slash yesindeedpod and sign up today. You'll get access to our Discord server where we can hang out and chat, and even join monthly editing streams and the Yes Indeed Pod book club. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me, so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene, helping to make it a healthy and inclusive place for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly, you can always help out by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcasts, or by donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter, for now, at yesindeedpod, that's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is taken from Be Quiet by Yatsar from the Free Music Archive, released under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 International License. Thanks, Yatsar! And until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.